Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. And like, what a murder. What a way to start, you know? <laughs> a really great murder. Good job. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spinoffs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. And today we're joined by a very special guest. It's Monisa from Camp Half Pod. Hi, Monisa. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. I don't have any cool titles or educational background in this, so I'm just here for vibes. (laughs) (laughs) So we are going to be reading Blood of Olympus today. But before we get into it, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what Camp Half Pod is? Sure. Um, I'm Monisa. I am a co-host of Camp Half Pod, which is a read-through podcast. Me and my friend Erin do it together. And basically right now we are on Trials of Apollo. I am reading it for the first time. My co-host has read it before. We just kind of do little spark notes of the books and each chap- we do chapter by chapter, about three to six chapters per episode, depending on the vibe and yeah then we give our thoughts and feelings on it so that's just mostly what that one is about is for fun and it's it's really fun to do and so I got to meet a lot of really cool people through it like you guys 
Yeah. So Monica is here because she is the first person I've ever encountered who admitted to liking Blood of Olympus, um, <laughs> which is a perspective I can't wait to hear more of because it's so rare and so refreshing. <laughs> I made the mistake, I guess, of openly admitting that I loved Blood of Olympus and that I liked it higher than Mark of Athena. It's like House of Hades, Son of Neptune, and then I I think I put Blood of Olympus, and everyone was very upset about it. And personally, I really love... So, like, when you watch Stranger Things, Lord of the Rings, I love the end part, because you have the beginning, where everyone is doing side quests. No one has established relationships with each other. They're kind of, like, in smaller groups within the, the whole... And finally, in the last book or the last movie or the last couple episodes, they all put their, like, thinking together. They come together and they work together to defeat whatever evil that they're fighting against. And so I really like that. I wish it had been done better in Blood of Olympus, (laughs) but I had been waiting for it. And so to be able to see, like, a lot of more interesting dynamics, like Piper and Annabeth and Nico Mm -hmm. and Reyna, I really liked that. And even to see a little bit of Jason and Percy interact, even though it was kind of not as much as I would like. It was nice to see everyone blend together after separating them so much. So I I do like it. And I do like that it wraps things up and then ties it neatly with a bow until tries to follow. But that was my perspective on it. It was highly controversial so now i'm going to double down and defend myself because it was like a kind of a passing perspective but now it's become my whole world view because people have questioned it so i'm a big (laughs) fan of blood of olympus i have to say i'm actually really glad that you like blood of olympus because like house of hades my college bookstore put the book out on shelves a couple days before it actually came out so i read blood of olympus Mm -hmm. before it came out and i enjoyed it <laughs> like I, I didn't really think that he stuck the landing but there was some really good stuff in the book and so yeah. when the book officially came out and people were acting like personally offended like it was the worst book to ever hit shelves I was very surprised I'm surprised it got such a negative reaction it got such a negative reaction that there was a campaign on tumblr to have fans rewrite the entire book <laughs> Oh my god. It was like that violent. <laughs> I think the thing that saved me, and this is honestly, it saved me also from being spoiled from Trials of Apollo, is I just am not in, until I made this podcast, I was not in the fandom. I'm not in fandoms in general, but the only time I like ventured online to look up things like fandoms and stuff was Percy Jackson. I remember being like, sophomore in high school and Pinterest was a new beta it was like a beta test platform (laughs) and I had you had to get like an invite by someone else to get it was like old school and I remember finding like those awful like what are the seven doing like uh Mm -hmm. colorful memes and I was like this is cute this is like the first and like seeing art and I was like in my brain Percy Jackson has always been like POC and then seeing this white boy and I was same. like, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> had the exact same experience. But I think that saved me because I had no idea people didn't like Blood of Olympus until I made that comment literally like a couple months ago. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into it. Uh, these opening chapters are some of my favorite chapters in all of Heroes of Olympus. I remember them. I remember being very surprised by them when I first read this book. There's a lot of ghosts in this book, actually, now that I'm thinking. There's, like, a lot of ghosts in this book. <laughs> There's so many ghosts in this book. 
It also has that fun stuff of Jason fainting a lot again. Mm-hmm. They keep making fun of him for getting conked on the head, too. Like, it's a running joke. And I'm like, leave this poor man it's, alone. They're self-aware. So the crew is passing Odysseus's home, where the ghosts of Penelope's suitors wait for orders from Gaia, right? That's how that opens. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not just those guys. Yeah. It's like a lot of people. It's like a ton of ghosts that uh, Gaia brought back who have un- unfinished business. Including like Hasdrubal of Carthage. And I'm like, why Hasdrubal? Why not uh, Hannibal? He just like picked some very random names. Sorry. It's like he picked him out of a hat. And I was like, why Rick? <laughs> <laughs> he just like wrote it down. He heard it in the side during his like little cruise around Greece and was like that's a name I could use in the future <laughs> yeah that's that's my hot take on this whole book by the way is that Rick went on a cruise and I can track it <laughs> <laughs> um, so Jason is disguised as an old man from the Odyssey and Annabeth and Piper are disguised as handmaidens and they infiltrate the ghost's ranks Right off the bat, Jason is basically being Odysseus, because that's kind of what Odysseus does when he gets home, is he gets, like, his allies together, disguises himself as, like, an old man, and then shows up to, like, take his home back. So I was like, oh, interesting Odyssey parallel. Wonder where this is going. I did want to talk a little bit about the dreams that Jason's been having that he talks about while they're on their way up. He says that the most recent nightmare that he had was of him being in the wolf house with Juno, and Juno is telling him that his life belongs to her and is an appeasement from Zeus. And then he like relives the death that he experienced in The Lost Hero, and then the dream Mm -hmm. shifts, and he's suddenly a child being offered essentially as a sacrifice to Zeus as a baby. It it felt very connected to the larger point that I've been talking about since The Lost Hero, um, Monasus, that you're in the loop, which is Mm -hmm. that uh, this series often treats Jason as a dead man walking. Because people are constantly throughout The Lost Hero telling him that he should be dead and that he shouldn't be there at all. And it's, it all culminates at the end of the book with him dying um, after looking at Hera's true form. And then he spends the rest of these books often unconscious, often on the brink of death. <laughs> yeah, he's very much just a trauma dump. The amount of uh, just <laughs> violence that is inflicted on him. Really? <laughs> That also does him a disservice because we're trying to learn who Jason is as a person and his point of view is just a lot of trauma and then other point of views of him are he's unconscious or he's injured. So we don't get to learn a lot about him and it just is a kind of a bummer. True. Like I I was learning whole new things about him in these chapters in like the last book of the series. I was learning yeah. new things about him that I probably yeah. should have known. <laughs> yeah. You feel so bad for him because... In these chapters itself, you're like, he never, his life was never his own. He was always supposed to be this toy and Mm -hmm. neither Hera or Zeus took him seriously or let him be a person. He's always had this like unfortunate role to play and he can never escape it. And I'm making myself sad. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I feel like these opening chapters are the culmination of a lot of that, like Jason as a dead man walking theme that we've been tracking which we kind of kick off this scene by reframing it all originally i was thinking that it felt like the narrative wanted him dead because he wasn't (laughs) supposed to be there like he didn't exist in the original series and so it was trying to kick him out (laughs) which i still think is true (laughs) but (laughs) 
I think reframing the start of the like he should be dead idea by paralleling his death in the lost hero with his mother giving him up to the gods it framed it as like a, a sort of metaphorical blood sacrifice like the very beginning of his story was him being offered as a sacrifice to the gods and that he's sort of been dead since he was two yeah um and so i felt like that was sort of a new explanation for the way that death follows jason throughout these books and will continue to later in these chapters something i noticed as well is i feel like it's almost like every time jason like gets a chance to like have a do-over like resolves to like start something new in his life or like take a new path he immediately gets killed and i'm putting that in air quotes yep <laughs> like seriously like you know end of lost hero you know he's sort of like yeah i have figured out my life killed the end of this chapter um also in uh is it mark of athena house of hades who's like i finally figured out who i am brick to the head poor guy if he figures out who he is every three chapters <laughs> i know <laughs> He definitely has amnesia, can't even remember. Poor thing, he keeps getting the reset button hit, both by himself and by the universe, and they're like, nope, not not right, not right. I'm curious how it plays in with um, our friend Michael. Um, right? Because <laughs> uh, basically, the Michael Verez is another person who shows up who we've met in The Lost Hero. Um, he was the one that led the failed quest in the 80s to go reclaim the eagle in Alaska. He tragically died mm-hmm. along with... Um, his entire the cohort he took sure something like that and so he <laughs> cropped up there and now he's back um and he's one of the people that's kind of waiting and in in the scene it's kind of talked about how this is a place of like where all of your kind of like worst desires come out where they kind of manifest and like it's again in that like stasis point and so that's why michael's there is because he is like so driven still by like wanting to reclaim the, the eagle like the honor of being a roman wanting to like carry on this legacy right the fact that his legacy is failure like that can't yeah. be <laughs> he can't enjoy that and there's a lot of legacy in this book too but it's i feel like it's never fully like it's always under the surface in this book like we never fully get to explore it it's sort of like the door is cracked to me and you kind of get to peek in a little bit but hmm. um, especially with reina though i think is like the main one where i see that too this book does a fun job of making me wish it was both longer and shorter at the same time. Where <laughs> I, I just wish I could dive into each one of their like backstories deeper and seek like interactions and character development, relationship growth with each other. And what I get is not always that. I see it in glimpse. So I think that's why I like this book so much is because I can see the potential for it. Mm. Same way I always feel about Piper as a character. Mm. I can see her potential. Mm-hmm. And that's why I like her. And then I'm a little disappointed in things that Rick makes her say and do. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. I have always said that this should have been the book where all of them got a point of view chapter. And I stand by I that know. instead of House of Hades. I liked it in House of Hades. But I could yeah. have handled nine narrators. And Coach Hedge. Oh, and Coach Hedge, obviously. Coach Hedge would just be all caps, <laughs> screaming the entire time. So, in this scene, we also have the ghost of Jason's mother, Jason and Thalia's mm-hmm. mother. The second time we've seen her as a ghost in the series. If we yeah, count. confirmation that she's actually a ghost out there. That was something that I was questioning. Is there, like, a difference in the reactions of Thalia and Jason to the mom? I'm trying Honestly, to Honestly, they kind of have pretty similar reactions which is the like stopping your tracks 
deal. And then I think both of them have that moment where it's like their mom blaming them for everything that yeah. happened to them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's also kind of a level of disgust that comes out of both of them where they're just kind of like don't like the version of the mom or the person their mom is because the ghost mom is not nice. She like wants them to either get like make her not a ghost anymore for both of them and both of them have a reaction of being like I have to leave you behind. Yeah. I there was one line that I found pretty interesting that Jason had here. This is what I was talking about um when I said that I was learning new things about Jason in this book that I felt like I should have known. Where it says his mother's unkept promise was at the core of who he was. He'd mm. built his whole life around the irritation of her words, like the grain of sand at the center of a pearl. People lie, promises are broken. That was why, as much as it chafed him, Jason followed rules. He kept his promises. He never wanted to abandon anyone the way he'd been abandoned and lied to. Poor baby. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> but I also, I mean, he explains it as he doesn't want to be anything like his mother. But I also think I found it interesting because it was a mindset that felt so separate from what these books encourage us to believe. Because we've mm-hmm. talked about how promises are basically like sacred in these books. Like they can't be broken mm. without something completely disastrous happening. <laughs> so a promise is usually binding. And, the, and we have perspectives in these books like Annabeth's and Nico's, both of whom I think believe a lot in promises and like they might acknowledge that people lie but a promise is like golden to them and so i almost i wished that i knew this about jason earlier because it's at odds with a lot of what we've sort of learned over the course of these books and that probably is why when we read him he doesn't seem as much of like a likable hero as percy because he's going against what these books stand for because he's poor thing trying to just follow rules and put his head down and be the hero he's supposed to be. And Percy's this like very sporadic, funny kid who's just who always is like loyal to a fault and breaks rules constantly in order to protect the people he loves. And which is yeah. more what I think we think of heroes as when we think as what we thought of heroes as children. I feel like I can really feel that in this book, especially in some of the later scenes and how much Jason, I think we've talked about it before also, but especially in this book, how much faith Jason has in his father that literally Mm. no one else, none of the other characters in this book have that much faith in their parents. Yeah. Yeah. But Jason is like very proud to be a son of Jupiter and it just separates him completely from all of the other perspectives that you're hearing. He also said something I thought was interesting was that, like, he basically intentionally chose the hardest path for himself of being like, I'm going to join the worst cohort and, like, take the least interesting missions. I thought it was an interesting reaction to being a son of Jupiter. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, then Michael stabs Jason and says, born a Roman, die a Roman. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty badass, not going to lie. It is. (laughs) But it happens, like you said, the second that Jason makes the choice that he's like, I'm not I'm not going to be one or the other. I'm going to be both Greek and Roman. And then like Rome comes and stabs him in the back because it's not that easy with like a history like Rome's and like a culture like Rome's. You can't just decide to do something else and move on. Like it's a part of who he is. And so he can't leave it behind. And I love this scene. I love this scene. Should we just dub in that clip of you from our Battle of the Labyrinth episode? She's like, I just love it when characters are in pain. I love it when characters are in pain, and this was perfect for me. <laughs> you got to see it from his point of view, getting mm-hmm. stabbed from your own point of view. Uh, yeah. Awesome. So we shadow travel to 
Mount Vesuvius, and then Pompeii, where Reyna dreams of Octavian, who's taken control of the Roman army and has added the worst of the worst to their ranks, including Bryce Lawrence, who was banished instead of being executed from New Rome because his family are wealthy residents of New Rome after he killed a centurion. And Octavian is now like styling himself like an emperor, akin to an emperor. He's dressed up like a Pontifex Maximus, which is like the highest priest in Rome, which is actually an elected position, if I recall correctly. Or no, it was a Senate appointed position. Um, Julius Caesar actually held it for a hot minute. He also talks a lot about how he's a descendant of Augustus, which is interesting because his name Octavian is... Augustus's birth name is Octavian. That's what we call him, at least. And he's, like, giving this whole speech also in it, which I also found really interesting about how, like, Augustus didn't ever want power. He was just the first citizen of Rome. (laughs) I just wrote my notes, a likely story. (laughs) What is interesting is that, you know, Augustus came to power after a long civil war, and... Augustus not wanting power, I say, is quite a likely story on account of, obviously, the fact that he took it to begin with. But my other favorite piece of evidence is the fact that, like, there are temples to Augustus in every Roman city founded after his reign, long after he's dead. And Augustus, by the way, is actually a title, and it means, um, like, the most revered, like, augury, august. Like, that all comes from the same root of, like, Mm. God-given so it's interesting. Octavian, I would say, is probably acting a lot like Augustus in these scenes, consolidating that power. Yeah. It was cool to read from Reyna's perspective. Yeah. I also felt like I was just getting to know her here. Yeah. And she's so cool. Girl boss to the extreme. Mm-hmm. I just, it felt like, like with Annabeth's first chapter, where you're like, finally, we get your brain. I wanted this for so long. <laughs> I do really enjoy how Reyna's powers work from her godly parent from Bologna, that she can, like, share strength mm. and, like, also kind of take burdens. Yeah. It just, like, feels so in line with her as a character, too. I just love it. She kind of has to just, like, take and take and take a lot of, like, pain all the time and still, like, is who she is. Still, like, wants to trust people and still, like, puts her faith in them. I just find, like, a really powerful aspect of her character. Mm. I will say that it is a lot of, like, again, the trauma dump of a character where you're just like, she's she's just been rejected. She's like, Jason and Percy have, like, basically abandoned her to this role of having to be leader and then betrayed her. And then she's now betraying what she believes in order to help them. And then now we get to her and she's just, like, so sad. She's the perfect companion for Nico. They can both, they both, like, balance each other out. Yeah in both being depressed but super good at suppressing it (laughs) yeah i love when reina realizes that whenever she's like offering nico her strength she's like also accidentally offering him all of her trauma (laughs) (laughs) and like taking his too and just being like oh yeah it's a great way two people don't have to ever talk about their trauma because they just show each other (laughs) their trauma I did like that that seemed to be like, like it was sort of that first domino of Nico being like, oh, somebody else can take what I've been carrying for me. Like he's like kind of, he doesn't really, he's like sort of forced into it in that way initially. And then he sees like, oh, she's not like running, screaming from me. And I feel like that kind of kickstarts a lot of like his journey in this book. Yeah, being able to be open to share and that like lets him meet Will and talk to Will. Which I totally forgot that this is the book that they have their little meet cute. And it's like definitely a highlight of the book. Which is why people cannot say that it is a bad book. 
because <laughs> that is so cute. I agree with you. I love their dynamic. Um, I was very interested in the way that Reyna thinks. I mean, I feel like we could have guessed at how like sacrificial and duty bound her mentality is, um, but she's like very proud to be Roman. Like she admires Roman history and idealizes a lot about Rome and like it, it was basically she believed it seemed a lot of the stories that are told about Rome like we've talked about rather than the realities of it. It's hard to become clear to me that the new Rome that she's built is not so much inspired by actual Rome and more about the stories that it's told about itself because it seems like that's what she's like acting according to. But like, yeah, the realities of Rome have still wormed their way in because it has that whole history. Yeah. And I think that's where you get a bit of her cognitive dissonance, though. But you can like see it. You can see it working in her where she's just like, I am aware of the realities of the world and I believe these things and I'm just going to keep on keeping on. She also has a great moment where she gets an arrow through the stomach and then Gaia tells her that she will die as a Roman, which was very... uh familiar <laughs> yeah. it's also so specific like <clears throat> why does it matter just like just like let me die in peace <laughs> don't have to declare my nationality every single time you stab me and then we move on to leo's perspective right yes but first there's something i want to point out there's this one quote that one of the ghosts has at the very end of this chapter it says you fight for nothing, the empire is gone. It's just mm. there are moments throughout this book where these like pawns of Gaia will say things that make sense to me because mm. we've sort of realized how corrupt Rome is at this point. And it's like Reyna, what Reyna's fighting for at this point isn't really what New Rome is. It's like probably more of the future of New Rome rather than what is actually mm. left of it. Yeah. And so... It's true that she's not totally fighting for the Empire in the way that she probably is thinking that she is because she is so like, you know, she spends a lot of these opening chapters talking about how much she admires Rome. I'm just having that moment where it's like, hey, that thing that you think that you're fighting for, it just doesn't exist. Mm. But this is one of a couple times where like some of Gaia's people will say something where I'm like, that kind of made sense, what you just said. And also made me <laughs> realize a little bit of like, I still don't really understand what Gaia's intentions here are. <laughs> yeah. Because like later on, there's the moment where the giants are talking about how after all of this, they will kill the fates and then no one will have a fate and we'll be free of prophecies and all of that. And I was like, well, that doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, I don't think yeah. most of our main characters would complain about that one. <laughs> mm -mm. But... Yeah, it was like lines like these that made me realize I was like, it's like everyone fighting for Gaia has something different that they want. Yeah. And it muddies exactly what Gaia wants. Like, I don't know if any of them actually know what Gaia wants. It seems like she just offers them things that yeah. they want and they fight for her. But none of them are actually fighting for Gaia's cause in any way. Well, I, I think I mentioned this at one point, though, where I felt like for her, it was just a lot of overarching, like, second chances. Like, she wants a second chance to remake everything. Mm -hmm. So Leo has sort of been isolating himself and is currently trying to come up with some kind of scheme to get him back to Calypso. So 
That's all you need to know about what hell Leo's doing. <laughs> Not well. No. He's been sleeping in the engine room a lot. He's been, like, sleeping by the Athena Parthenos. Yeah. So in this scene, Leo, Percy, Frank, and Hazel all leave the ship to confront Nike. And actually, the fact that they sent Percy to go confront the, like, com- competition goddess, that felt stupid to me. <laughs> they were sitting there like, who's the best combination who won't get, like, bogged down by feeling competitive? And they were like, put Percy out there. I was like, what? Percy is Jackson. And <laughs> surprisingly, he's not the one who, like, falls for any of her tricks, though, later on. Like, I guess he was a good choice, but, like, still strange. No, I was thinking, though, a lot about like, the Ares scene in Lightning Thief, though, where he just so easily, like, he feels it coming over him, and he's like, I don't care. I'm just gonna have fun with it. And I I kept waiting for that moment, because I was like, this is so similar. The way that I rationalized it was that, like, because the only people we actually see any kind of, like, symptoms from are Leo and Frank, but Percy and Hazel seem just themselves throughout this scene. But I don't think Percy has any reason to hate anyone there and i don't think hazel has any reason to hate anyone there either but leo and frank still have like a little bit of a a rivalry going on so it makes sense that like Mm. her influence affected the two of them and not percy and hazel to me but we do get right before this while they're exploring town we get a leo and percy scene which is like bizarre to read i remember reading this the first time and also this time and feeling like like all of a sudden you're hit with the fact that Leo and Percy have never spoken more than two words to each other. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that Leo like hates Percy so much and resents him so much and Percy like barely acknowledges that he exists. <laughs> Leo says that he resents Percy also for being like Jason, like too perfect. And he finds Percy intimidating, which Percy doesn't yeah. help by summoning a stone that Leo skipped out of the water. <laughs> So eventually they make it to, um, where do they go? Where's Nike? (laughs) Oh, it's okay. So I've been to Olympia. Um, so basically where they start, um, is sort of this like entrance to this sort of elaborate archeological site. And then there's sort of like this, um, like tunnel that they kind of go through and then you get onto the fields of Olympia, which is a field. There's, there's no stones, there's no Mm. seats around. When they had their athletic fields, they would be like, well, it's going to be a flat field with clay on it. And then there will be like starting blocks of stone on one end. And then there's going to be like a turning post on the other, a stone post, um, often a herm. And then like there'll be like a grassy knoll surrounding it that like areas of the seating area. But like we're not going to make stone seats of the seating area because that wouldn't be comfortable. (laughs) And then the Romans would come in and be like, we're going to build it out of marble. And they'd like build a whole ass stadium out of marble, which I can't imagine was that comfortable to sit on. So what happens here is Nike tries to influence them all to fight each other, which I kind of wish that they had, (laughs) but they're all able to resist her and pretend to fight each other. Also, the way that we defeat Nike at the end is like super brutal. Frank, Hazel, and Percy are such a deadly trio because it ends with Hazel putting her sword under Nike's chin and then Frank like forcing her to lift her head up to look at him and then gagging her with his sock and then Percy threatening to have Arian eat her wings (laughs) like they are so scary yeah and then they just like shove her in the boat yeah and they just keep her (laughs) like they just keep her (laughs) so after this we get to uh Nico and Brenna and Coach Hedge getting attacked by the werewolf 
the random werewolf who shows right. up for one chapter and then disappears. He does it again here. <laughs> and then from here, we get the Sparta scene. Piper sees in her knife that down there, it's supposed to just be Piper and Annabeth, which this is one of like many times where they've looked into the dagger and been like, well, it says here <laughs> that we're supposed to do this. Like they're so reliant on visions and like i feel like this series is so like deterministic that was yeah. what I, when i read this i was like for some reason this random moment where piper and annabeth are like oh well that's what piper saw so that i realized how much this series relies on like well this is what's supposed to happen and then it happens yeah i mean they go off of their dreams so much and they're like it, every other chapter is like a dream telling them what to do because rick was like how do i get them from point a to point b yeah. none of it comes from like an internal like oh we should do this or like even it's no. rare that they even get the instructions that you're supposed to go here now like it's yeah. it's almost always like i saw this and so i'm going to do it or like they think to do something and then it's like well the fates haven't uh, faded that that's not part of the prophecy and then like the yeah. prophecy even in this book happens exactly as they would basically expect it to like their understanding of it is just correct at the end yeah yeah and none of it yeah. is subverted like it is in the original series which could be a complaint but i could also <laughs> make it not <laughs> um because i think that it also makes you feel just how much they are basically being puppeted throughout the entire series as like the the consequences of being a chosen one is that everything you do is already determined so you can feel like just what a handle on them that the fates have because like a lot of them are fated from birth to do things that they do in this series and it's just so little of it is their actual choice yeah like leo yeah that's that's exactly who i'm thinking of <laughs> but like yeah. in the first series a lot of it is up to their choices even if some of it is like prophesied the prophecy could have ended up 15 different ways but here it's like everything is completely solid and there's nothing you can do about it yeah although that is why i, I find a lot of the archaeological stuff i'm gonna talk about so interesting mm. because um this scene i think is where it kicks off a fun trend called rick is personally making me mad <laughs> it's like he kind of came into a lot of these archaeological sites and was like this is what i wish was there and then he got there and was like this is a pile of rocks and also it's not what i wanted it to be oh no what do i do and then he decided no one will care i'll just make some shit up none of these kids have been here anyway <laughs> yeah he forgot about emily i was there <laughs> it's all because you insulted him to his face when you were in seventh grade I know. <laughs> it's payback. Know. No, but Sparta here, you can you can even tell because of the way it's set up, because we see in Pylos, like, uh, the posters of, like, Piper's dad, and she thinks about how her dad starred in this movie that's, like, clearly, like, this universe is 300. And 300 came out, and everyone became obsessed with Sparta, because they were like, wow, it's so cool, the warrior culture. And so Rick was like, yeah, let's go to Sparta. Now, here's the thing about Sparta. Imagine for a moment a society entirely built on where every single person, they, they go and do military stuff, then they get married, have kids, or go off fight and die in wars and stuff, and they're very proud about the fact they're not, like, into material goods. And I want you to think about that for five seconds. 
and be like, oh, did these people who've made their entire culture about not being into material goods leave behind any material goods? No, no, there's nothing Mm -hmm. there. There's nothing in Sparta. (laughs) There's a single like temple to Athena, which I think is the ruins that they go to like in the scene, like it's around like their Acropolis because um, the Acropolis is like a common feature of a lot of Greek city states, not just Athens. They basically like have a tall raised citadel in the middle of the city. And then it would kind of, um, the way people have described it is like, it's like the cracked egg city method where it's like this big central Acropolis. And then like it's sort of the rest of the city sort of spread out around it. But like, this is all to say, this is what's in Sparta, fucking nothing. And so Rick gets to Sparta and he's like, I'm imagining, where's my, where's my temple to Ares? Where's my, where's my cool buildings? Where's my, my, I was expecting so much because everyone loves the movie 300. It's so cool. And then he was like, well, you know, what if? And then just made up everything they do. Well, they go underground. Maybe they just haven't dug far enough to find it. (laughs) They go underground to find like a chain temple. (laughs) Bro, I, God, it's not there. What's crazy is there's a temple to Athena there. That would have been an interesting scene. What I find really interesting, though, is you say, like, it's so determined about, like, what the seven do. And yet at the same time, it feels like the entire ancient world has been rewritten. Like, they kind of, by their presence, are kind of rewriting, like, a lot of the stuff in the ancient world, if that makes sense. And so at the same time, like, it's so predetermined. And yet there's so many elements, like, under the surface where it's just, like, blatantly changing the reality and, like, the narrative of, like, what's actually at all these places. So you're saying on, like, a meta level, Rick is the fates reworking the world because they're, they have to, they have to end up in Sparta. Yeah, because <laughs> as this movie came out that got really popular in the West. I don't know. <laughs> as someone who loves, you know, history and just like I go to old temples all the time. I love going to historical sites. I would have been really excited. And so so reading like, you know, Leo and a couple of the other characters being bored by their historic, like these are like the the land of the people that they are now, essentially, because they are, you know, descended from Greek gods. So it should be exciting for them. But then it's also a nice refreshing reminder that they are at the end of the day, 15 year olds (laughs) who don't want to be here. You know what? We're missing the Annabeth POV. That's the problem. Exactly. If we had that, we would know a little bit more. Right. Annabeth would have said all of this if we had Annabeth. (laughs) Annabeth would have been sitting there like, um, did you know? Actually. (laughs) Actually, this is wrong. This shouldn't exist. (laughs) But speaking of Annabeth, this is a big scene for her. Like, character-wise. This is a big scene for her PTSD Mm -hmm. as well, which is not something you've seen with her. Yeah, because she and Piper talk a little bit about Tartarus, and Annabeth says that the top of her list of things that scared her in Tartarus was Percy controlling the poison and suffocating misery. She says she can't get it out of her head and that she's angry at Percy for scaring her. And uh, I just think that this is something she should really be talking to Percy about. But I'm glad that she said it. (laughs) Yeah. Piper says she thinks about that that all in relation to Percy's fatal flaw, too, which is very interesting. Like when Annabeth's talking about that scene and like him standing in front of like chaos and stuff. Piper's like, oh, yeah, that's his fatal flaw. Yeah, which is a weird thing to know about your friends, just especially your friend's boyfriend and just know his fatal flaw when you're having a conversation with her. I just like out of context, that is very scary. (laughs) These guys know everything about each other. And it's so funny because most of the time they say that they heard it from other people. (laughs) They're like, oh, it's a small (laughs) ship. Sorry, I did. I I know you didn't know I knew this, but... (laughs) 
Yeah. Like, they are all gossiping all the time. <laughs> Constantly. It's hilarious. It's very teenager-y, though, so I'll give them that. So in this scene, they go into a, a temple of Phobos and Deimos, which Piper is able to make it through by focusing on her emotions and instincts, which is something that Annabeth is not used to doing. She's used to having a plan and thinking her way through things. And also the fear is getting to her throughout this scene and is basically making her relive all of the fear that she felt while in Tartarus, plus any other time that she's felt fear. So she's mostly out of commission until somewhere near the end of this scene, um, when Piper finally gets through to her by telling her to focus on what she's feeling and like let herself feel the fear uh, rather than trying to logic her way out of it and like just really sit in it and feel it. Which I think is probably an important step in her like recovery post Tartarus. Yeah, I was imagining Piper like sneakily took Annabeth to therapy in this scene. Basically. Essentially, essentially making her feel her feelings. I also liked the fact that this is one of the few scenes where Annabeth is out of commission because everyone else like when Percy's there, obviously Percy's fighting and he's the one who's doing a lot of the stuff in Annabeth. It then supplies him with the way to defeat X, Y, and Z. But in this one, Annabeth doesn't come up with the final plan. Like she has to just sit there yeah. and let someone else take care of her, which is very, it's nice to read for someone who's constantly taking care of everyone else and who has been through this like big trauma. Yeah. I really liked their relationship because they kept trying to tell me that Piper and Annabeth were friends. And I was like, when? Yeah. Where have they talked to each <laughs> other? And so this was really nice to read and see them talk about things that aren't about boyfriends and talking about their own emotions, their own trauma. And mm -hmm. it was nice. Especially getting to see Annabeth work with someone who is very different from her, I feel. Like just the way that Piper thinks because i think like when she's working with percy i think we were sort of talking about this in house of hades because in percy's mind the way that like annabeth gets out of things is by talking her way out of it but like percy does the exact same thing like they actually think pretty similarly and do think their way out of problems in pretty similar ways a lot of the time but piper is like full throttle no thoughts like <laughs> and it's just like so different from the way that annabeth does anything yeah. She does love to vibe her way out of a problem. Yeah, it's interesting to see Annabeth have to collaborate with someone who is like such an extreme... What's the word? Because all I'm getting is like... Because you keep calling all the giants Wario versions. <laughs> 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 I'm like, it's kind of her Wario. But... It's so true. Oh my god. <laughs> I would say maybe like her her foil if you want to. Yes, that's whatever. the better word for it. <laughs> <laughs> I was also thinking it's it's a good thing Percy. You know, Percy was like pushing to go with them because he's like this was something that was interesting to me was that Percy at the beginning really wanted to go with him because he's very attached to Annabeth, but Annabeth seemed perfectly fine with leaving him. And, you know, I figured it was just he doesn't want to see her go anywhere without him because it's that same instinct that made him, like, follow Clarice's quest in Sea of Monsters or, like, the Hunters in Titan's Curse. It's just, like, in Overdrive right now, post-Tartarus, um, that he doesn't want her to go anywhere without him. But it's a good thing that Percy didn't go with them because he's consistently been having, uh, like, at least one panic attack per book. Yeah. And this would yeah. not have ended well for him. <laughs> No, and he's like so powerful too, 
that he would have caused something horrible to happen. They would have definitely used his powers against him. Right. And it was just like the the fear of Annabeth going on her own was enough to just like break all of the plumbing on the ship without him yeah. even yeah. thinking about it. It's like I he shouldn't be put in any situation where his emotions are at a peak right now. <laughs> he keeps also joking about drowning things in this book. Right, he joked that he joked that he couldn't <laughs> drown and so neither could his waffles or his pancakes and I was like you were very afraid of that literally two books ago. I'm glad that you have this newfound confidence. She also is <laughs> Nike's like, oh man, wish I could drown her in front yeah. of Annabeth. <laughs> He's like, oh my god, aren't they cute, quirky, and funny? This is why I'm like, he needs to talk to Annabeth about this because the fact that he would even make that joke and be like cool with it, it's like oh. he clearly doesn't know how much he scared Annabeth and that she's like still really afraid of what he did. Like they, they have no idea of what the other one's going through. I don't think they've talked about it. I really don't. Oh, absolutely not. It's also funny to me every time I think about like Annabeth, which is like a reasonable and logical reaction is to be very scared of the way Percy reacted. And you go onto the internet and the internet is so thirsty for murderous Percy. <laughs> they want him so, they want him to murder so many people. <laughs> it's so insane. I was like, are we all right as a collective? We are not. I mean, I like Murderous Percy, but, like, not in a thirsty way, just in a... Like a nuanced way. Just in a, like, oh, this is fun. <laughs> in a, like, I want to examine him way. I want him to yeah. do it more yeah. so I can <laughs> watch him like a bug. <laughs> <laughs> Anthropologically speaking, rather than yeah. <laughs> salivating the corner. <laughs> and from here, we transition into... Nico and Reyna and Coach Edge. I always, I keep wanting to just say Nico and Reyna. Nico and Reyna and Coach Edge. I mean, well, who's important? The Athena Parthenos lands yeah. <laughs> in San Juan, um, which is where Reyna is from. Reyna is kidnapped by the Hunters of Artemis. And it's it's a great scene. And when Phoebe, Phoebe dies, that's a great scene? No. <laughs> I remember reading this for the first time and being like, she's back. Oh my gosh, <laughs> Phoebe's here. <laughs> I just love that there's an actual quote I want to put on a t-shirt. That's just Phoebe is, and then they list a few things, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Generally write about most things. <laughs> my favorite thing about this is that Phoebe's immediate reaction is most things, which like she's literally me. Yeah. Like I'm in this book. That's so crazy. <laughs> you just need to dye your hair red and then get the sides shaved. No, he made her a redhead to keep me from realizing it that it was me mm. so that mm. I wouldn't sue him. But um, right. I am suing him just so everyone knows. Um, one thing I thought was really interesting in this scene was the relationship. I say Hyla between Hyla and Reyna, like how their sibling relationship I just thought was so interesting like they're so combative like you really don't get the sense that they've like grown up together mm. like they kind of are both in their own worlds i liked the reading how they both like responded to their shared trauma and backstory differently mm. and becoming who they became and so that was kind of cool to read yeah yeah i also thought it was interesting that we get them kind of talking about their pasts and how they shouldn't be running from their fear right after the scene with Mm -hmm. um, Bobos and well it wasn't with them but after the scene with Piper and Annabeth yeah I found that that felt like a theme that came up a lot in this book was the idea of like you can't run away from your past and that you need to remember the things that have happened to you and like acknowledge them and hold on to them yeah that comes up a lot like almost every encounter something like that happens which like we just saw it with Annabeth having to sit in her 
fear for a, a good while. <laughs> um, but also with yeah, Jason. Yeah, we saw it with Jason, yeah. the ghost, yeah. I feel like Orion as well, in a weird way, as like a villain, he's kind of like, to me in mythology, he's always sort of feels like he keeps just doing what's in his nature, like keeps doing the thing, even though like he keeps getting like so many different setbacks and so many of the same story happening over and over for him. So like him just like chasing them down every time kind of like reminds me of that a lot. I felt like it was a good kind of uh, full circle on the memory theme that's in this whole series, just in this last book, kind of forcing everyone to remember their pasts, considering it started with Jason and Percy forgetting it. So next is the storm scene, which is one of my favorite scenes in this whole book, where I don't know, I don't remember what her full name is. I, she's Kim in all of my Kim notes. Apalea. What is it? Kim Apalea. So Kim is down at the... So Christy Kelly. <laughs> it turns out that the goddess of violent storms has taken over uh, Poseidon's old palace um, at the bottom of the sea and is trying to wreck their ship. And so I love the scene where Percy and Jason are trying to communicate in the storm. Yeah. I think it's so funny, especially because like Jason can figure out what everyone around him is saying, but Percy apparently can't read lips. And the whole time that Jason's <laughs> trying to talk to him, he's like, I don't know, man. <laughs> but he sort of mimes to Jason that Jason needs to jump into the ocean with him to stop Kim. And while they're down there, we find out that Kim is working with Gaia, of course. And along with her is Polybates, who we met in Son of Neptune. He and Kim engage uh, Jason and Percy in a fight. What I found interesting is that before this, Jason is the one trying to smooth talk the god and Percy is not. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait, hold on a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back up, back up. Why is Jason smooth talking and Percy just like, uh? <laughs> yeah, I was also surprised by this because that's not really a Jason move. But I guess he's been learning from the best. I wonder if Percy is like, I don't know, he seems like he's almost having fun at the beginning in the storm when he's trying to like keep the ship together. <laughs> but maybe once he gets underwater and sees like the ruins of the palace, it like puts him off enough that he's sort of off his game and Jason has to take over. And then he's like really off of it once Polybates shows up. Yeah, and then Polybates like has like anti-water, I guess. Um, he wafts it over to Percy and Percy starts choking on the poison water. Yeah, it's it's specifically described as it's poison, as yeah. like an anti-Poseidon thing. So like Percy really yeah. shouldn't have been able to control it. And Percy's just like choking on it while Jason's talking. Like it's like a long process. Like it doesn't it doesn't stop immediately. Yeah, so Percy swims into the cloud of poison, and obviously it poisons him, and he doesn't bother to try and control it, and in order to save Percy and get them out of this, Jason starts making promises to Kim, telling her that, you know, he's gonna make sure that they know her name at Camp Jupiter and at Camp Half-Blood, and that uh, Percy has started the process of giving back to the minor gods and all of that, and that Jason's going to make sure that that happens, that he will follow through on what the gods haven't yet. And this becomes like sort of Jason's new mission, is that he's gonna go home and he's gonna make sure that what Percy originally asked the gods for is going to happen, even if he has to do it himself. And it's funny because like Jason makes these promises and then at the end, Percy is sort of shocked that Jason did that. He's like, that's a lot, that's hundreds of minor gods that you have to now honor. 
Percy's almost reluctant to follow through on his own thing that, <laughs> that he asked for. Mm. Like, he wouldn't do it himself. He, was, he wanted the gods to do mm. it for him. <laughs> yeah. Although it's interesting as well because it's also painted as, like, that's how we're going to end all this conflict. Like, mm-hmm. build shrines to more gods. That's how we end the wars. Yeah. Which, it works for me, though, because I wouldn't believe Percy doing it, because Percy doesn't have that kind of faith in the gods, and he wouldn't think that that was the answer anymore. It's like, sure, it might have been the answer last year when you tried it, but at this point, like, we're kind of done with that in Percy's mind. But Mm -hmm. Jason still has that faith in the gods, and so Mm -hmm. this idea of, like, we need to honor them all and make sure that they're all recognized, and, like, that's where we went wrong. Like, that make sense to me as a resolution that Jason would come to because there are a lot of like minor gods who are helping out Gaia at this point also during this conversation with Percy at the very end we get something from Jason that made a lot of people angry with him (laughs) back in the day Mm. which is that Percy confesses to Jason that when he saw the poison coming toward him he decided not to fight it and to not even try to control it and that while he was choking on it he started to feel like maybe this was just the fates and that it was karma for what he did to Misery. That he was gonna die the same way that he tried to kill her basically. And that there was a moment where he just almost accepted that that was how this was going to go Mm. and Jason just goes like yeah I get it I get it man. (laughs) Yeah. And then he doesn't say anything after that even though Percy waits for more from him. Like there's a line where Percy sits there and watches him and waits for Jason to say more and then when Jason doesn't offer anymore Percy changes the subject. And then that's the last we get of Percy talking about Tartarus. (laughs) Like ever. (laughs) And he wanted to talk about it but Jason wasn't able to give him that. But I don't hate Jason for this because Jason confessed basically the exact same thing to Piper earlier in the book. He doesn't know what to do with feeling like you might just let yourself die because he felt it himself when he was dying at the beginning of the book. And so what's he really supposed to offer Percy? I mean, honestly, like Percy, the king of not sharing. Yeah. And he actually opens up and then like wants more and then doesn't get it. Like it's like kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. (laughs) Especially because it's paralleled with the Piper and Annabeth scene that came just before this where like Mm. Annabeth gets to air all of it out and then experience something that helps her work through it and acknowledge the fear that she feels and come out of it with like Piper as a new partner that she is much closer to all of a sudden but Percy comes out of this scene feeling worse about what he's done and he gets no reprieve from it (laughs) I'm not upset with Jason at all it's more just that I'm like I can't believe that this is basically where we leave Percy yeah well here's the thing though is obviously like they told the story before so first of all, I'm just imagining that. So now actually it turns out everyone on the Argo 2 like knows that Percy drowned did what he did and he's just joking about drowning things on board. How are none of them like he's a serial killer? I assume that he must have just told maybe one of them or Annabeth told someone who told someone who told someone because this ship is very they're gossipy. Oh my <laughs> who are the gossips though? Piper's probably telling Annabeth things and Annabeth is telling Piper things. Annabeth actually is probably a pretty big gossip. (laughs) I feel like like, Hazel and Frank don't give me gossip vibes. No, they might tell each other things. Jason won't gossip. Jason would keep your secrets. It's just the Romans. The Romans will keep your secrets (laughs) and the Greeks will not. Basically. (laughs) So I could see Annabeth having told... I mean, I think Piper even says that, like, Annabeth is the one who told her about Percy. 
and then Piper, I can see telling Jason. Um, but I was thinking like during the um, scene when they get to Olympia, Frank points out the Nymphaeum and is hesitant to oh, even yeah. say that it exists because Percy's there, which I was like, I, the only reason he would react like that is probably because Percy told him about that and he knows that it would upset Percy a lot. And so I can see Percy telling Frank about a lot of this stuff. Mm. Just because that on its own feels like confirmation that Percy told Frank at least about the stuff that happened in Mark of Athena. And there wasn't time to talk about the stuff that happened in Mark of Athena after Mark of Athena. Yeah. <laughs> it has to have been within the last two weeks. Or he heard it from Jason, who I don't think would do that. Or Piper, who might have done that. <laughs> but to know that it bothers Percy to that level, that he wouldn't even want to bring up that it exists. That feels like a mm. Percy told me this. Yeah. My last thing about this scene is also that Jason comes out of that whole situation. Up until this point, he's been plagued by that wound he got in the first scene. That is apparently, like, leeching off of his soul or whatever. Right. And it's like, he, this is the first time he's pushing himself back into battle. And by the end of it, he's, like, completely forgotten it's there and it's completely healed. Yeah. I'm still not sure why that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you why metaphorically. <laughs> it's something about him deciding not to be Roman or whatever. But... Like, he learned that lesson, like, five times in this series. Like, I... <laughs> I mean, it kind of is that. But I connected it back to the very beginning, where he thinks back on basically being a sacrifice to the gods. Because he has this quote that's um, interesting. <laughs> He's remembering the die a Roman line. And he says, No, if he had to die, he would die a son of Jupiter, a child of the gods, the blood of Olympus. But he wasn't about to let himself get sacrificed, at least without a fight. There were two things that I took from that. One was like, again, how dedicated Jason is to Jupiter and to the gods. Like, no matter what, he's not having that crisis of faith that everyone else is having at this point. Mm. But the other, I felt like this was the resolution, I think, to this series is Jason is a dead man walking storyline because it's him proclaiming that he's not going to be a sacrifice, which is, in my mind, what started that, like, dead man walking thing for him because he was sacrificed to the mm -hmm. gods and should have sort of been metaphorically dead at least from the beginning and that he's like he is a sacrifice mm -hmm. and so him deciding that he's not going to be a sacrifice and then his wound heals that's been like slowly dragging him to his death throughout this book it like it feels mm -hmm. like a release of like the the death that's been hanging over him this whole time so next we get the bryce lawrence scene i like so much of how this is set up because i mean we we don't start with the bryce scene like in in this chunk of nico chapters we start back in san juan where with nico now being terrified and afraid and angry that someone else who's important to him has been like taken by the hunters which is yeah it says he tore apart the courtyard in a rage when he found out the hunters had taken Reyna. yeah and then um when reyna returns we start this off by them talking about I, I believe nico says your voice is your identity and that she should not be afraid to like use her voice to kind of express who she is right because she's trying to explain what happened to her and is afraid to talk about it, doesn't want to talk about it at all. We see her home that's full of ghosts of all of her ancestors, and we find a little bit more about her family history too, which is that apparently her family line goes all the way back to the Roman provinces of Spain, and they're all blessed by the goddess Bologna, but she and Hyla and her sister are the first like children of Bologna in the line, so they're not like legacies. And then um, how her dad essentially manifested all of this like ancestor spirits into their house 
through his kind of obsession with the weight of his legacy. And it's to the point that, like, he became one of the angry spirits inside the house at some point. Like, they don't even know when it happened. It just, like, all of a sudden, it it just, like, happened at some point. It was, like, this transition from man to ghost and into specifically a mania, which is what Jason's mom is described as at the beginning. So presumably these are, like, the restless spirits of, like, Melanoe. Um, I think I mentioned, like, Roman ancestor rooms in an episode before. Mm-hmm. But, like, having your, like, familial legacy, like, on display like that in your home is a very Roman thing. Like, it would it would be something an upper-class Roman would not find to be weird at all. And in fact, they'd be like, why don't you have that? Are you poor to other people? <laughs> and so I do think it is really interesting how Roman Reina is, and yet how much clearly having that experience that is quintessentially Roman, especially, like, old Roman, like, from an old Roman family, which her family is, how much that was such a source of trauma for her. I think it does go a little into what you were saying about, like, what Rome actually is versus what Rome is believed to have been and how that plays into Reyna as a character. Because I think here we are seeing the, like, very real consequences of what that kind of worship of legacy, that kind of obsession with legacy can do. And we also learn that she commits a huge Roman taboo uh, before she left, which is that her dad, once he'd become this, like, angry spirit, he, like, came after her, and she killed him, and, like, patricide is, like, a big deal, and she talks about how if anyone in New Rome found out about it, she would be executed for it, so, and I do think in many ways, like, you kind of mentioned before, it also shows how she does sort of represent this, like, idealized version of Rome, but not in a way where it's, like, the glories of the past, but what could we be if we took the good and left behind the bad? Right. Reina has the coolest backstory. I know we've yeah. said that before, but she has the coolest backstory. <laughs> but uh, after Reina confesses all of this, and she's basically talking like, well, don't, don't tell anyone I killed my dad, though, because if anyone in Rome finds out, that'll, that's X grounds for execution. Bryce shows up and is like, oh, hey, remember me? And he manages to capture Reina. And is going to bring her back to New Rome. And Nico finally gets to big three kid tap into his anger. Mm. And it is something to behold. It's the coolest thing he's ever done. (laughs) But basically what he does is he has all of this anger and he just unleashes it. And apparently like projects all of his anger and all of these feelings that he's been bottling up in a way where like coach hedge and reina like get to see and kind of experience them but it also allows him to harness his power and turn bryce just straight into a ghost saying the absolute rawest line in the entirety of the (laughs) reordan verse he says you're already dead you're a ghost with no tongue no memory you won't be sharing any secrets And Bryce says, no, no, I'm Bryce Lawrence, I'm alive. And Nico says, who are you? And the next sound from Bryce's mouth was a chattering whisper. It's so good. (laughs) Turns him straight into a ghost. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. (laughs) And what's crazy is it's all about secrets too, right? Because I think the thing that also really triggers Nico is like how Reyna's biggest secret is being weaponized against her. And you can tell that that's like his greatest fear for himself. So that's, like, the biggest thing where he's, like, he has to expose all of his secrets to do this, but it doesn't matter. But anyway, next is my favorite scene. Oh, what's next? Delos. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Guys, when I first read this book, 
This scene made me so mad. I texted Phoebe, like, receipts. I texted, like, an extensive essay with photos. Because what happens next, Phoebe? They go to Delos to get the last piece of the physician's cure from Apollo and Artemis, who are staying in Delos because it's their birthplace. And so they aren't affected by the Greek and Roman schism here. Guys, do you know what's on Delos? Like, do you know what that archaeological site is? Uh, according to Rick Riordan, what's at Delos is a bunch of crumbling temples. Guys, it's a Roman, like, vacation town. That's, those are the ruins that Rick saw. They're not temples. It's a Roman vacation. It's Rome. It's a Roman, Roman vacation town. Like, it's villas. You see what I'm getting at here? Like, oh my god, Apollo and Artemis, they won't experience the Greek-Roman schism on Delos, a Greek island with Roman ruins. We want this to be where they hang out with Apollo and Artemis, so we're just gonna pick and choose the pieces of its history that make the most sense, even though, like, the all of this stuff they're walking around and interacting with is, like, not that. It's just, like, so clearly Roman, too. Like, I, I know that, like, Rick isn't an archaeologist, right? But, like, the Greek and Roman ruins, like, visually are very different from each other. Like, I, if I can, like, you can usually tell, like, pretty close, like, at a glance, like, if it's Greek or Roman, you know, like. Right. And he does something similar in Epidurus, I think you've mentioned to me. But what's crazy about that is, so they're flying into Epidurus and they're all talking and they're like, oh my God, whoa, do you see that? That's so cool. It's like a circle. And in my head, I'm like, oh, they're talking about the amphitheater. Because fun fact, Epidaurus has the, I think, one of the best, if not the best, preserved Greek theaters. But no, they're talking about something else. There's no fucking, they don't mention the theater. They just talk about the, the, the building they're referring to is called, like, the Tholos of Apidorus, I think. It's, like, famous because no one knows what it's used for. It's, like, this, like, random building that's circular. But they, like, Rick decided that the use of this building, like, once again, we're opening up a chasm underground into the super secret, <laughs> quote-unquote, real ruins of this place. I just, like... The ruins are cool. Why can't why can't the ruins just be you know like why did you go to Greece, Rick? If you were just gonna retcon, if you're just gonna make shit up, like why did you do it? It is interesting too, just because like I feel like so much of early archaeology, like I think I might have even mentioned this before, although I don't know if it's made, cut the cut into the episode, but like an archaeology professor once joked that like all the early archaeologists were digging to find Homer. You know, like, he was British. Um, all of the archaeological adventures in this book feel very... They're, they're just, like, trying to find the, the myth part. They're trying to find the, like, cool, relevant, quote-unquote, myth stuff that are part of these sites. And we start, like, at Ithaca and Pylos, which are genuine, like, like Mycenaean sites. But then as we kind of devolve and as the sites don't live up to the expectations of, like, I think what we would expect when we hear, like, ancient Greek mythological site. They just kind of, like, have to devolve more and more into fantasy, like, taking, like, one or two, like, real things and then, like, opening up, like, a secret underground space that, you know, like, maybe there's a bit of an archaeological mystery there, like, with the, you know, the Tholos at Epidauros. Like, we don't actually know, like, what that was for. Okay, let's invent a reason. Or, like, oh, there's nothing in Sparta. Let's just, like, create something. And part of me is wondering if, like, it plays into this idea where, like, the West is being changed, like, the, sorry, the old, the old world is being changed because of new perceptions in the West. 
um, if, like, that plays into it, where, like, all of the secret stuff, like, kind of has been opening up as more and more people start believing more and more that there are these, like, secret mythological things that are happening underneath all of the real-life ruins and, like, the real-life evidence of, like, the civilizations of the peoples of the past. Because, mm. again, it's like, this is what we want it to be. It's not what it is. He does something similar when he's in Rome. <laughs> they get to the Pantheon and are like, let's go under oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, well, to be fair, though, the Pantheon was ruined by the Christians. That's true. The, but there are also a hundred other Roman ruins you could visit that you wouldn't have to go under and make things up about to find interesting stuff inside. So, yeah, I, I get where you're coming from. So, uh, let's get into the ending. From here, Reyna and Nico make it back to Camp Half-Blood at the same time as the Argo crew are heading up to the Acropolis. And at Camp Half-Blood, uh, Reyna and Nico are seeing the damage that Camp Jupiter is about to do to them. And it's also here that Reyna finally fights Orion. And she says the most important line in this entire book while she's killing him, which is, quote, this is for Phoebe, uh, essentially dedicating the entire series to me. Thank you, Reyna. Like, this is the least. This is the least that they can do after killing me so unceremoniously. <laughs> um, but up on the Acropolis, the seven are at the same time fighting for their lives until Annabeth uh, gets slashed across the leg and Percy gets hit so hard that his nose starts bleeding, which then kickstarts Gaia's apocalypse because the blood of Olympus hits the stones of the Acropolis. So... How do I feel about this? <laughs> it's definitely not what I was expecting when I heard, like, blood sacrifice. Yeah, it's kind of stupid. It kind of <laughs> reminds you again that this is a child, like, this is middle school books, like. Well, they keep saying it's going to be, like, a death thing. Like, like, over the course of the series, they keep building it up. Yeah. And the thing that confused me the most was, like, I, there are moments, which I, I've pointed out, that it feels like there's more to the sacrifice than just blood falling on the stones. Like, they specifically say that, like, Percy and Annabeth are the ideal candidates. Yeah, it doesn't even matter, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one actually did make sense to me. Because they say, like, oh, yeah, on the Acropolis, this is where, like, Poseidon and Athena, like, duked it out. And I was like, oh, child of Athena, child of Poseidon. Okay, that explains it. But it's like a throwaway line. And it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. I do. The thing is, like, I complain about it, but I do love the nosebleed just because it's like it's mentioned very briefly that Percy gets hit in the nose and his nose start, starts bleeding and you kind of forget about it. Yeah. And then it, like, yeah. at the very end, when Piper realizes that his nose is his nose is still bleeding and that the blood has like worked its way down to his chin. I remember reading that the first time and being like, oh, no, like I completely forgot. It's like the dread sets in all at once, which I, I do like. <laughs> it's silly, but I do like it. <laughs> it's a good cliffhanger, and I, I mean, I like that bit. Like, I don't think it's a bad thing that it was done in an unexpected way. It's just a little bit anticlimactic, considering it sounded like more was needed for the sacrifice. Like, it sounded like it was a sacrifice. <laughs> there was no clear reason why... Like, why Why do they, they... They know that they're the ideal sacrifice, and they're like, no, we're the ones that should go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that also plays into what we were talking about earlier, where they, they kind of, like, this prophecy's gonna happen. Like, yeah. Gaia is going to wake. So, there's not much they can control about it, so they just kind of keep leaning into it and just hope that the outcome ends up being something that's positive. And it does. It ends up working out in the end end. Right. 
And it's almost in the, the way that they have to have her wake so they can put her back in the ground <laughs> in order for it to be completely over. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, that is like another thing. I know that's like a bit of a jump that really made me feel crazy is that <laughs> they they get her out of the ground. She's like emerging and the, the they put her back down so fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she doesn't feel like a cool villain. I was just so bummed about it because they were building her up as such a cool villain and Luke's death and that final battle scene with Luke and Kronos was so good. And this was just like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Gaia to me was like very intimidating in the first two books, I would say, as we were trying to like understand what her whole deal was. But I think that's actually part of it is that like her deal is just take over the world with no deeper, you know, with Luke. <laughs> yeah. And in the next series, we'll see it's like there's just so much more going on in what the, the villains want. And with Gaia, it's just sort of take it back. It sort of reminds me of like back when Game of Thrones first started going off the rails. And for the record, I'm a. It started going off the rails for me in season five because I'm so cool. I thought it was bad in season five. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they're always like discuss. It, you could tell because in like the deep fandom, there's like always discussions of like, and it, even like in, you know, not people that weren't necessarily super into the fandom. They're just used to the twisty politics of the earlier seasons. So they'd be like, oh, and then this character keeps saying that this is their plan, but like secretly, I think they're working towards this. And then this other character keeps saying that they're going to do this, but I think secretly they're working towards this. And then like it would play out exactly the way the characters were saying it would. And everyone towards the end of the season just be like, but that wasn't twisty. What? Uh-huh. It's a thing where you set a precedent where you do something really well. And in, in Game of Thrones' case, it's because like, they were working off the books, which are a lot twistier and better and more subversive, but they're not very good at like writing subversive stuff themselves. They were like good at adapting it. So like when they started going off the books in season five, they, were, they, they forgot that they had to do that or they <laughs> yeah. weren't good enough to do it. And I feel like in this series, it feels a lot like Rick was, because the first series was so good, I feel like it was around Mark of Athena where he was like, I'm in over my head. I <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we'll get into that. I think I in our wrap up for this whole series, I am going to I have a whole theory about where this series was supposed to go and that it didn't. Oh, I can't wait because Phoebe won't tell me it. She's never told me her theory. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I really ah. think that he changed his mind somewhere there in the middle. I think he had a plan. <laughs> so the gods show up um, all at once and are willing to help their children. Yeah. It took them long enough. Very cool of them. Now it is, and it's yeah. Like, and they, like, pair up, too. It's, like, Athena is fighting with Annabeth. Like, Jupiter, Zeus is fighting with Jason. Like, Yeah, it's it's cute. And where were they four books ago? <laughs> they were having an identity <laughs> crisis. It's not their fault. <laughs> At first, when I read this scene with all the gods appearing, I was like, this kind of gives me the same vibes as the end of uh, The Last Olympian, where I was I was a little bit put off by how happy we were with the gods at the end of the first series. It just felt kind of out of place after we'd spent the whole series realizing that Luke was kind of right about some things, and we just weren't acknowledging like the damage that the gods had caused. And so I was getting that vibe from this moment when the gods showed up, but I do think it was sort of acknowledged with the scene that follows it where the gods talk to their kids, especially Zeus. Like, yeah. they did not come off well in that scene, no. which I liked. 
It's like this scene is almost a bizarro version of the end of The Last Olympian, where, like, Zeus is up there and Jason is making the same request that Percy made. Yeah. But, like, Zeus is far more terrifying, and, like, it's to the point where, like, Percy has his hand on his sword because he's expecting things to go badly. Yeah. You know, he's punishing Apollo, he's yelling at Hera, and it just, there's that earlier scene where Jason is talking about, like, completing what Percy started at camp, but it's like, he has to do all of it himself and is taking on all of that because the gods aren't going to do anything. And it just, you can feel that in this scene. Yeah. That, like, all of it's going to come down to them and the gods aren't going to do anything for them. It kind of feels like a good graduation of like PJO was your kid. The way that it resolves itself is very like the parents finally step in. You've held them accountable. It's done. And then the teenage version of it is like actually adults fail you and you have to learn how to take care of yourself. And how Mm -hmm. do you solve these problems? Mm -hmm. I did think it's interesting, though, that that's like the first like we've got the defeat of Orion, then this then Gaia and then interestingly like the last defeat is Octavian which I always thought was really interesting yeah yeah and his defeat is wild Mm -hmm. it's so wild it's like straight up murder it's brutal (laughs) he is the character of all the like you've got like several tiers of villains in this series he is the villain and probably the only villain that I wanted to have a violent death because Gaia's mother earth and then the giants are just like warrior versions of the gods. Like it, they're not evil. They're just like following again a fate. Whereas like Octavian is like just like a fascist. Like yeah. he's just a dictator <laughs> and he's, yeah. he sucks. And he's the reason why a bad lot of bad things are happening and things couldn't be easy. And so him getting catapulted into an inferno is a bit righteous in my point of view. <laughs> Shall we wrap this up with the final chapter? Yes. of this book with Leo's heroic return after dying I will say when I first read Blood of Olympus I remember talking to you and I was like you were saying you didn't like it and then you were like oh actually you know what you should do Emily is when you read it don't read the last chapter <laughs> and it's a much better book <gasps> I did and I was like you're and I I, I I obviously read the last chapter but I stopped and I was like yeah that's a good ending and then I read the last chapter and I was like Phoebe was right <laughs> because she's generally right about most things. Most things. <laughs> but it, I, I get that point of view. But the whole book is them getting the ingredients for the physician's cure. So mm-hmm. then to have done that and then Leo doesn't use it and doesn't live. It's just like I wasted like 600 pages doing what? Yes. I. My thing with the physician's cure is that like I, I have conflicted feelings about it because... Part of me is like, I can't believe that Leo let his friends go into battle thinking that they had a cure to death and that they had some way out if something went wrong and that they didn't. That is true. And that he just left with it. Like, that's kind of um, terrible of him. But I love when characters do terrible things, so I'm not complaining necessarily. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's pretty cool of him that he did that. The book clearly thinks that it's fine that he did that, though, which is what I'm not a fan of. But I don't know. It just it. I wish someone had died on the battlefield and used it. Like, I would rather that happen than, like, him take it and, like, go save his girlfriend that he never should have had. But I do feel the way that he could have just been like, I'm going to do, like, communicate with Jason and Piper and be like, I know you won't let me, but I do have the physician's cure, so it'll be okay. 
Yeah. And then they would have probably let him. And then they even if they didn't let him, they wouldn't have been actively, like they would have been busy and he would have been able to do what he needs to do. And they wouldn't have had to stress and worry and assume he was dead. That was kind of mm-hmm. shitty of him. Yeah. I acknowledge that the ending exists now. <laughs> At the time, I thought it might be better without it. It does kind of make it a bummer, though. And this is what I told Aaron, is I know a lot of people want Leo to be dead. Like, that makes a good story. But if, from a character point of view of, like, Leo is the only one without a girlfriend. Leo's constantly insecure and thinks that everyone will be better off without him. And then he dies. Yeah. is just, like, not the message I'd want in a kid's book. I think for me, it, was, it wasn't that he died. It was, like, the mystery. It was, like, an ambiguity of, like, does he make it back? Is Does his plan work? Ooh, mm. Yeah, that is true. Oh, because you know he had it. And- yeah, and, like, the way the ending works with Jason and Piper as well is, like, they're talking about Leo and, like, wanting to keep him. It's, like, all about, like, the, it's coming full circle a lot with, like, keeping him alive through stories and stuff. So in a yeah. fun way, it, like, that ambiguity is kind of cool because it's, like, what is the reality of this myth? Like, do we know? When, and, like, us kind of... You know what I mean? It's like sort of him becoming a real life myth. So I don't see it as like a tragic ending per se and more of a like mythological ending, if that makes sense. Yes, I like it all. You know what? Let's get rid of the last chapter. I've changed my mind again. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, amazing. What a strange, bewildering book. The the battle was the thing that I would say was negative points, but everything else, like getting the god, getting to have this moment of confrontation with the gods, getting this moment where Percy is about to fight his own family and mm-hmm. the, fight the gods if Jason is in trouble, which is such a development of them being like weirdly competitive with each other in the beginning when they met each other. And I also really loved the comfort that of the weird like throuple that Frank, Hazel, and Leo are in. They're finally <laughs> in a comfortable place in this book. And so it's much more fun to read. Mm-hmm. I also just love Reina and Nico's dynamics and learning more about them. And I love Nico's development in this book. Like I cannot emphasize it enough. We get his point of view um, a lot more intensely. We get him to meet Will and him like develop a crush. And then he also gets to tell Percy that he's over him. Well, like what a great <laughs> moment. For children everywhere. <laughs> Moving on. I like I think there's so many good parts of this book. The the pacing does ruin it a little bit, but it has so many good parts that I think overall it was a delight to read and I was felt comfortable being like, Okay, we did it, we ended the series. And clearly there's something else that's gonna happen and we're gonna move on to another series. So I was like ready to be done with it. And I was right re- felt like it they, they did the thing they were supposed to do, check mark. So I feel like I can comfortably defend this book as a good book. (laughs) I'll defend it with you. (laughs) Thank you. We have an army of two. (laughs) I don't disagree with what you said. (laughs) Okay, so it's the two of us versus Emily. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Well, at the end of each of these books, we always choose what we would design the bead to be, um, especially because this book oh. doesn't have one. So if you were to design a bead based on Blood of Olympus to like represent the whole book, what would you put on it? It's a good question. So part of me wants to put a little ghost on it because the amount of ghosts they encounter and have to like deal with. Yeah. But um, the other part of me really wants to put just like the physician's cure like a little vial mm. of something something because mm. that's like the entire point of the book and it ends the book well there 
Yeah, that's uh, better than what I was thinking. Because in my <laughs> head, when I think of like what design was on probably on this summer's bead, I assume it was just a little Athena Parthenos. Oh. Which is just yeah. what I would give this book, because those are my favorite scenes, or the Parthenos trio. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was really my my bead is the ruins that are at Sparta. <laughs> it's just a blank bead. <laughs> just a blank fucking bead. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Thank you, Monica, for joining us. If people want to find you, where can they find you? Thank you for having me. We are Camp Half Pod. You can find us on Instagram with the same name as the handle. Or you can email me, camphalfpod at gmail.com. I get lovely emails from people who have like want to put in, do little lightning bolt questions. So any questions you have related to either Trials of Apollo or the series as a whole, we try to answer those and give our weird hot takes on them. So They can also uh, join your mob, right? Yes, you can join my mob. Oh, There's right. a form um, on <laughs> Google Forms you can find. I think it's in our link tree at this point. And we have like quite a few very, everyone's so creative. I Everyone is funnier than us. It's so great to read everyone's responses. <laughs> so join our mob. If you want to be in a mob, just want to do something fun with your friends. You already <laughs> own a pitchfork. We love to have you. So if you'd like to find us, you can find us at PJOPod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can also email us any of your thoughts or questions at monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com, which our next episode is our wrap-up of Heroes of Olympus. So get those in yeah. by, like, I don't know, Thursday is what I'll say. <laughs> Assuming this goes up on a Tuesday, we've been very off schedule lately. <laughs> Who knows when this episode's going up? <laughs> Two days from whenever I posted this. Get me those questions. What else? Uh, you can tip us um, if you want. <laughs> we have a Kofi or Kofi, whatever you're supposed to say it, which is linked in our link tree um, if you'd like to leave us a tip. And you can rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. That would be nice. Bye, everybody. <laughs>
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.